Good morning and welcome back to season two of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Shane. In this episode, we tackle Satoshi Khan's career-defining feature-length debut, the mind-bending psychological thriller, Perfect Blue. Strap in, folks. It's going to be a long one. Human Instrumentality Podcast Season 2, Episode 3, rolling. Mima Kirigoe is the front woman of idol group Cham, who are not doing well financially, though they command a dedicated fan base of creepy dudes. Offstage, she lives a lonely life in a studio apartment where the only object of her affection are her fish. When she's not on stage, her managers argue about her future while she huddles silently. Mima's ambitions, though, are bigger than music. She wants to be an actress and has landed a role on a salacious crime show called Double Bind. She plans on announcing her departure at a small sham show, but is interrupted by a fight between some of her fans and her stringy-haired stalker, Uchida, who goes by the pen name Mr. Mimania. Eventually, the fight breaks up, and Mima tells her fans about her career change. They aren't impressed and beg her to stay. While exiting the last show, one fan calls out that he loves visiting quote-unquote Mima's room which is also referenced in a piece of fan mail. That night, Mima's well-meaning mom calls to tell her to keep singing, but Mima says her mom doesn't understand. Her pop idol image is suffocating her. The call is interrupted by a creepy, breathy stalker call. The next day at the studio, Mima asks one of her managers, Rumi, what Mima's room could mean. Rumi tells her that it's a website. Mima only has one line of dialogue on the set of Double Bind, and her second manager, Ted Okoro, begs the producer and director to give her a meteor roll. Just before cameras roll, he's wounded by a letter bomb hidden in her fan mail. Later, Rumi helps Mima set up a computer, which she uses to see what Mima's room is. It's a fan page that chronicles her life, as if narrated by her. Its details are accurate enough that the site could only be written by someone following her every move. Meanwhile, Rumi and Ted Okoro argue over her future. Rumi wishes Mima had remained a pop idol. She was one herself. By the time Mima makes it into the office that morning, after brushing off her fans and getting a quick look at her stalker, she finds her former bandmates in Cham celebrating. They finally got a hit on the charts. Without her. But it's not all bad. Mima has more lines in Double Bind now, provided that she films an explicit rape scene. Rumi hates this idea, but Mima takes it up, anxious to shed her innocent image. On her way home, that innocent image confronts Mima in the form of her own reflection. That doesn't stop Mima from shooting the almost pornographic rape scene, which brings Rumi, her manager, to tears. When Mima gets home, she finds her beloved Tetras dead and has a nervous breakdown, admitting to herself that she never wanted to shoot the scene in the first place. Her mirror image confronts her again and then disappears 
revealing that the fish are still alive. Mima's just losing it. On the other hand, the rape scene plays well with the press, and Doublebind's ratings go up, to the chagrin of her stalker, who is presumably the writer behind the Mima's Room website. Well, we'll get into that. Yeah, we will. When Mima checks the site again, she finds more blog entries, bald face lying about her life and her feelings. This distresses Mima enough that her mirror self appears again, breaks free from the confines of her computer screen, and then slut-shames her before vanishing. Meanwhile, the writer behind Doublebind winds up murdered in a parking garage at the hands of Mima's stalker, presumably. Or someone. Somebody. After this, Mima's psychological state begins to deteriorate, although in public, she's riding her sexuality to stardom, taking interviews and posing for risque photo shoots. At the same time, Mr. Mumania grows more and more deranged, apparently egged on by her mirror image. Mr. Mumania eventually receives an email claiming that the Mima on TV is an imposter, and he vows to get rid of her so the real Mima can return. Meanwhile, Mima's life becomes a continual waking nightmare, where she is confronted by her mirror image, pursued by Mr. Mimania, and tries to take solace in Rumi's friendship, but is losing track of time. Following Mima's breakdown in front of Rumi, Mr. Murano, the photographer who had been egging Mima on to be more explicit in her photos, is stabbed to death by a pizza delivery boy, who turns out to be a disguised Mima. Mima then wakes up after the murder, thinking it may be a dream, but finds the news of the murder on live TV and the delivery boy outfit in her closet, still bloodied. Of course, reporters are crowded outside of her apartment, begging her for a quote. On set later, Mima faints while acting out a similar murder. For a second, we flash into the world of Doublebind, where it seems that Mima's whole life, as we've seen it, may have been a fantasy. But psych! It's just real life being written into the script, making Mima's acting a show-stopping performance. She's finally a respected professional actress, and the first season of Double Bind has wrapped. Mima goes to change for the rap party, but on the way runs into Mr. Mimania, there to murder her on the same set where she had her rape scene. After a tussle that shreds her clothes, Mima manages to overpower Mr. Mimania and kill him with his own hammer. When she takes Rumi to see her stalker's body, though, it's missing. Mima's nightmare hasn't ended, either. She awakens in her apartment, being taken care of by Rumi, but when she tries to call Tadakoro, he doesn't answer. Tadakoro is dead his eyes gouged out the same way that the screenwriters were, and his corpse, for some reason, is next to Mr. Mimania's. In horror, Mima realizes that her room hasn't been reset to the way it was when she was a part of Cham. In fact, it's not her room at all. It's Rumi's. In one final twist, we see that Rumi has been possessed in a way by Mima's mirror image, She's been behind the murders the whole time, projecting her fantasy about being an idol again onto Mima, even wearing a new Cham outfit. 
Rumi tries to kill Mima, leading to a tense foot chase through Tokyo that leaves Mima badly injured. In the end, Mima pulls Rumi's wig off of her head, causing her former manager to badly cut herself on broken glass. The wounded Rumi wanders into traffic and is nearly hit by a car, until Mima tackles her out of the way, saving her life. In the end, Rumi winds up in a mental ward with no perception of who she is, while Mima is apparently a successful actress, in command of her own image once again. And that is a very brief, very difficult summary (laughs) of a very difficult to summarize, but very fucking good movie, I think. Yes, agreed on all counts you may have heard me interject with some editorializing in my response to the recap but it's it's a difficult movie to recap because it plays differently each time you watch it i think and it took me about like three times watching it to even like sort out who was murdering who and when and it's all it's a lot of confusion and the confusion is very much the point for so long that if you are for some reason ha- listening to this without having seen the movie, please like accept the fact that the, the summary may not have been exactly as detailed as you like, but it's a very difficult movie to summarize. So forgive us. Well, it's hard to summarize because I, I don't know the last time I've seen a film that is so tight and has so much packed in it. Perfect Blue is 80 minutes long. It's not even an hour and a half. And I think more shit happens in Perfect Blue than in the fucking Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like, <laughs> I've, I, when I was writing this summary, I skipped probably like a third of the fucking movie because <laughs> so much happens and so much is told in little cutaways so much of the plot really exists in the set dressing in the background photography things are implied by the editing it it really is like the ultimate satoshi khan movie in that in that way right in a way i i I think it's it's a it's a perfectly sensible debut movie by a guy like khan right because he has come of age as an animator, as a background artist, and as an editor, and as a writer, Mm -hmm. right? And so he uses all of those vectors to their greatest possible extent when he's telling the story. And a lot of that comes from the unique and very interesting, like, production behind Perfect Blue. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that later. But, like, the story behind what it took to make this movie is probably about as interesting as the movie itself to me. <laughs> um, if we're just going right into it, that's because this is going to be a long episode. But I've got so many good things to say about this movie. I really, really, really liked revisiting perfect blue Mm -hmm. uh what do you think ian oh i mean this has long been one of my favorite movies uh i think up until this recent rewatch it was far and away my my favorite satoshi khan movie that's going to get more complicated in the next episode of this podcast I I just, I remember seeing it and it being exactly what I wanted from it was just like straight up my alley you know like 20 year old 
you know, add the, the same sort of biographical de- details that I gave previously in this season. This was pitched like just directly to me. I like first chance I got, there was this DVD video store in my neighborhood in Chicago at the time that was closing down. I'll always remember it because it had its like signs out front all in the Iron Maiden font for like no explainable reason. There's no but, reason. You, know, you don't need a reason to use the Iron Maiden font, Ian. We know this. <laughs> Right. It's like Helvetica, but, you know, cooler, more metal. (laughs) (laughs) So imagine that and then imagine on the front of the store in the Iron Maiden's font uh, going out of business sale, you know. So I I go in there. I see Perfect Blue. It's the only thing I grab. I was like, if no one else is going to leave this building with this DVD, it belongs to me. And it has lasted me the rest of that time. I show it to everyone that I think would be into it, which admittedly is like, as you may be able to tell from the, uh, the summary is not necessarily everyone. I think this movie is like kind of a tough ask for some people. And I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that, but I just think it's like a, a flat out masterpiece of animation. And it's, it's only risen in my esteem every time I've watched it. It's never had the like dip that maybe some of its contemporaries and followers have had as I've watched them more and more. Well, it's funny because you say it's not for everybody and and this movie does have kind of like a reputation for being outre, right? Like I remember before I'd seen Perfect Blue in my local blockbuster in Toledo, Ohio, I'd I'd been like reading in America. I'd been going on, you know, blogs uh, at, at that point, probably more like live journal pages, I'm thinking, right? And seeing people talk about Perfect Blue and it had this reputation as this like, oh my God, what a mind bending twist movie. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to be honest. I actually think it, it as difficult a time as we had summarizing the plot, it is a relatively straightforward f- film and, and it's pretty entertaining. There's, there's not a lot of fat on it. A lot of things happen, you know, for as like convoluted maybe as like the editing and the visual cues can be everyone's motivation is really clear. All the dialogue is really clear. You don't need to like, know. it's not like Evangelion or Jojo's where like, you've got to bring in like, oh, here I did all my reading on the Dead Sea Scrolls to try and figure out what the plot is. Here's, Mm -hmm. you know, psychobabble techno jargon. None of that, right? It's like, uh, here's movies, here's pop music, Starlet wants to go from one to the other. Oh, image problems, uh, psychological breakdown, you need a therapist. Crazy fans, crazy fans. This is, I mean, it's pretty like the, the, the basic toolkit that he uses to tell the story is pretty entry level. And I think that's part of the genius. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that it is a story that like you can do this kind of movie in a bunch of different ways, like playing with those same ingredients. And it just so happens that it's a per, he chose the exact right way to cook those ingredients to make a movie uh, that is simultaneously as you're describing both like accessible on a, on paper level, but also bewildering if you're not ready for how many curveballs it's going to throw you over the course of watching it, because the movie does a really, really excellent job of losing its mind kind of in step with Mima, as well as the other two characters who are also having mental breakdowns in 
the movie. Uh, and that's also part of the reason why it gets confusing is it's not just a single person going insane. Right. It's like th- three different distinctly, uh, you know, separate unreliable narrators all at once, which is just like, it, it causes this insane tonal confusion uh, near the end of the movie that I, I, you know, is probably one of the more memorable parts is like the, the, the sense of complete unraveling that happens. But so much of it is like, yeah, it's, it is so accessible. Like, I think the the animation style goes a long way towards that as well. The fact that it's all, like, pointedly very recognizably human humans. It's very, like, pointedly set in real-life Tokyo in that particular period of time. And I think there's a lot of care to make it really feel like that era, uh, at least from an outsp- outsider's perspective, which I think also has to do with the music, which we'll get to. Um, it just feels like a very human story and goes out of its way in some cases to like shit on anime that is not human stories, um, it, which makes it like if this is a movie that interests you, but you are not interested in anime, like you will get on this. I think it will like grab people who maybe are not familiar or uh, as like steeped in the stylistic peculiarities and particular uh, particularities of anime itself. Yeah. I think this is a great movie for like, if you've got a friend and they're not into cartoons, but they're a sick fuck, <laughs> like be like, yo, come to my basement. Let's smoke a joint and watch perfect blue. It will take less than an hour and a half and you will have a good time. That is a reliable yes. promise for you to make to that non-anime friend sick fuck friend (laughs) right uh and i feel like it might be this would be a good time for us to kind of define that type of person because i have like an image of the guy that you're talking about doesn't have to be a guy but sure yeah yes very true like there is there's absolutely um i have a tough time recommending this to the women that i know just because i this is maybe a personal hang-up but it's just like a scene like the one that happens in this movie is just like, I don't know who to lob that grenade at. And I don't want to do it like recklessly. That said, I do, I do think like the fact that this is like essentially uh, like a dude bro dorm core movie, but about women primarily makes it like extremely cool and unique in comparison to a lot of movies like that. Yes. Totally. And that is, I think that is its place in pop culture and unwittingly like the place that Satoshi Kon found himself in pop culture, right? This Mm -hmm. movie is anime's great contribution to like the dorm core poster genre, which is like not a genre that I'm sure even exists anymore. Like, do people still make dorm core poster movies? Uh, I mean, I guess we'll probably have to define our terms a bit first, but I think the closest modern equivalent is like a 24 shit. Sure. You know? Yeah. Like the sort of like premium mediocre headbender, like just slightly off the mainstream, but still like with mainstream movie stars and relatively high production value kind of movies, you know? Yeah. I mean, if we're, so let's, let me try and refine what I'm talking about really, really specifically. Mm-hmm. When I think of a dorm core poster movie, it's usually a psychological thriller or neo-noir in the vein of Alfred Hitchcock, probably. 
It's usually there's something to do with a murder or a crime or voyeurism. And usually the psychological state of a main character or, or multiple main characters, as in this case, is a central like mechanism to how the plot works. Usually there's a twisty ending. Mm-hmm. I think like in like the late 90s, early 2000s, there was kind of like a renaissance of this, which is also like when Perfect Blue came out, came out in 1997, right? So this came out at like the ideal time. I'm talking about movies like Memento, Seven. What else? Help me out here, Ian. Throw some, throw some of these Fight out. Fight Club. Fight Club. Yes. Uh, exactly. The Mechanic. Uh, or The Machinist. The rather. Machinist. Yes. Um, I think usual Sp- suspects kind of falls into this too. Mm-hmm. More of the, the noir twist ending kind of stuff than the, the more psychological end of things, but same universe. Uh, I think Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream has a similar, like the person that tells you like, dude, you got to watch Requiem for a Dream is the sick fuck that you recommend this movie to. Right. <laughs> well, let's 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 pause on Aronofsky for a second because he's going to come back in this episode. Boy, howdy. Um, <laughs> but we can't get into that right this second. Going back, kind of backtrack for one second. Please. We'll, yeah. we'll go back to the dorm core thing, too, because I think it's a really interesting uh, canon. But the rape scene. And maybe when we started this episode, I, sh- I ought to have, have given like a little warning that like, there's going to be like some fucky sexual assault in this movie. It is, it is comes almost at exactly at the halfway mark. It is mm-hmm. like the most lushly animated part of the movie, except for maybe the foot chase at the end. It is like, it is sort of like the center of, of the puzzle box. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the twisting. It's the point that like completely turns the actions of several main characters all kind of are, are hinging on that moment. Right. I did not have the reaction to this movie when I first saw it that you did. And that is because when I was a kid and I rented this movie from blockbuster that like that scene made me incredibly deeply uncomfortable, like a, a really weird, like, early pubescent mix of like arousal and revulsion that mm-hmm. like, I just could not process at the time. I did not know how to process, but I was hanging in there. And then, and I think this is like the moment that like, even though I, I like rejected the movie when I saw it, I knew that it was the work of a genius. This is the fucking thing in that scene. It's this super fucky rape scene and then in the middle of it, because it's being filmed, it is fictional within the realm of the fiction, right? They call hold, like to reposition the camera. And the guy who's supposed to be raping Mima, like has to like pause. They're like stuck there. He's like, yo, you good? And she's like, yeah, I'm okay. We're good. Mm-hmm. Everyone takes a breather and they make you pause like, and action. And then right back into it. And I remember distinctly, like when I was a kid having the thought that, like, oh my God, people get paid to do this. Like, this is what someone, like, does for probably not that much money on, like, a Friday morning all the time, right? right? Yeah, and, yeah. like, I just was not ready to think about all those things together at once. So the first time I rented it, I didn't even finish Perfect Blue. I had to wait two years, rent it again, and then I found out what the twist was. Um, 
And I was like, uh, and then I, at that point in time, I think I was still like, in a way, like hung over from like the way I reacted, the rape scene. So I was like, what is this world that this guy's making where everyone's psychotic? This is like, this is as ludicrous as the stuff he's making fun of, right? And <laughs> now it's 2021 and I realize, oh no, he's right. We're all, we are all crazy. He's right. Yeah, I, I think it, it'll. Uh, this will come up several times in this season. The more we progress in time and the more technology kind of catches up with Khan's vision of fame and fandom, the more this movie and some of the later ones as well kind of like pop out in my mind. I think this is like it admittedly a very bleak and uh, cynical look at the realities of fame, but it's one that I think is really perceptive and has a lot to say about the ways in which um, being famous warps your sense of yourself and warps other people's sense of you and how these things can kind of co-mingle into a very uh, confused state of being. And it's relentless with that. Like part of the reason that the movie is able to move so quickly is that it essentially has this like Greek chorus of fans that like comment on the action and sort of allow for a lot of these like more elaborate jumps from one scene to another through like moving from one place to another, which will allow Collins completely outrageous match cutting to, <laughs> to kind of like just blister all over the place in the narrative. Um, and they feel extremely true to life. And despite never being named in the movie, it's like, oh yeah, those three, like if they're around today, they'd probably be doing this. They'd have a podcast, you know, like we both know a ton of music people. And those, <laughs> those three losers feel like people we know. <laughs> I'm just going to say though, neither of us are hoodie and dreadlock guy though. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I don't know all your friends. You don't know all my friends, but I think I can speak authoritatively when I say we both do have a hoodie dreadlock friend though. Yeah, going to shows, you meet some hoodie dreadlock friends. Um, they're all right. They're not the worst. I wish they'd change their haircut, but they're not the worst. <laughs> true, true. Um, yeah, and the, and hold on to that idea about the 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 kids, the like tough kids, and the idea of the Greek Greek chorus because those things are going to come back in in like Khan's later work. Actually, a yeah. lot of this is going to come back in Khan's later work. Uh, the two actors, the two actors that uh, Mima is working with on the show Double Bind, I feel like also kind of are con archetypes and will be, you know, sort of doubled later on. Yeah, it's also a movie about like the making of a TV show, which, you know, it's close enough to the making of a movie that you can tell that there's a kind of like lived in reality. And he's got such a, uh, in this movie in particular, a really cynical and like, non-romanticized view of making art like we only really see art being made in this movie from the backstage uh rather than really the results of anyone's hard work like we never hear a song in its full entirety without getting interrupted and we never see a like too much of an episode of double bind but considering that there's so much about production in this movie perhaps we should talk about the production of this movie <laughs> i think that's uh, I think that's a great idea. Before we begin, I just want to know, Ian, mm -hmm. did you know about all the bullshit that went down when they were making Perfect Blue? Not when I first saw it. Definitely not. I've only like picked up bits and pieces of it from 
being around you know well being around you on the <laughs> making of this project but also just being around on the internet since but going in i had no idea how troubled this this shoot was i don't remember exactly but i think like multiple times while researching this series i have texted ian in probably in the middle of the night and been like god damn making perfect blue was bonkers <laughs> Well, at least no one got stabbed in the eye with a screwdriver. Or so or hit by a letter bomb. Side note, that is some old school evil fan brutality. When's the last time you heard of someone like being injured by a letter bomb? Do people even do that? I I mean <laughs> I the fact that like this movie that I've just hyped up as being like one of the best movies about the internet also involves faxing someone death threats. Right. It's like <laughs> So remarkably anachronistic. I love it. I, I You get the weird sense of nostalgia when you're watching it. Like, oh my God, the old Macos startup smart, smiley face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Netscape Navigator. I'm pouring Angel Fire websites. Oh my God, cracking one for the Angel Fire website. Rest in peace. Fuck you, Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> side note, did you notice? I didn't notice till this rewatch. I've had to rewatch this movie three times while we're making this podcast. Did you notice that the little like custom angel fire cursor images on Mima's room are her fucking Tetra fish? Oh, that's so creepy. Oh my it's God. So creepy. <laughs> oh my God. This is the, what's so great about rewatching this movie as an adult is like you, you, you look back on, you're like, Oh, he's already signaling to you before you even know what the content of the website is that this guy knows too much mm-hmm. about well, this person. It's not, I, my, perspective on the movies it's not this guy who's making the website uh i think it's pretty clearly supposed to be roomy but that's i think that's true yeah i don't know if i don't know if they ever explicitly like have a scene where they point out here is roomy uh making the mima's room website but it, Mm -hmm. it that's the only thing that makes sense yeah it's the only way that like the like the the sequence in which uh mima reads that she went to harajuku and then she finds the harajuku bag the next morning with like the bloodied pizza delivery clothes it's like that's rumi going out and shopping for the clothes that she's going to wear to kill the photographer and posting about it on mima's room and i think like rumi is the only person that could have known all of the details that are on mima's room continually and it gets crazier as rumi kind of like silently gets crazier during in sort of the background of the movie is my read on it. Totally. Before we get too into who did what at what time, maybe we should actually do what we said we would do and tell the story behind the making of Perfect Blue. Very true. (laughs) Okay. So you may not know, but Perfect Blue is an adaptation. It is based on a novel that was published in Japan in 1991 by uh, a writer named Yoshiaku Takeuchi. It was his first novel, and it's called Perfect Blue, colon, Total Pervert. <laughs> a I real know. classy title. Real classy. It just, it's got, well, it's, it, in a way it makes perfect sense, right? The book has the word hentai in the title, and you look <laughs> at Perfect Blue in Blockbuster, and if you don't know what it is, you think, did they actually put hentai on the shelf? So uh, he pitched the, no- the novel as a live action film for years, and it was going to be made. They wanted to make uh, the book 
as a live action movie until the great Kobe earthquake in 1995 that destroyed the sets that they were going to use to make the movie. (laughs) A real act of God right Right. there. So it has to be made as an anime, like by accident. (laughs) That's just, I I mean, there is an earthquake that's sort of obliquely referenced in one of the news like the news on TV at one point, I wonder if that's like an in joke about like the production of the movie within the movie itself. I think it might be. I mean, also earthquakes like factor into the next movie. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. I think maybe at this point in time, Satoshi Kon was very thankful that that earthquake happened. Right. Anyway, a producer named Takeuchi Okamoto uh, took the project to a studio called Madhouse asking them to animate it. Madhouse's CEO, Masayo Mayamura, sorry, Masao Mayurama, did not like, he didn't like the idea um, for all the reasons that probably Satoshi Khan liked it. It was in a modern <laughs> setting and there was no fantasy elements in it at fucking all. But he was like, whatever, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do it, right? Um, and he called Katsuhiro Tomo, who made Akira, and was like, I need someone to make this movie. I don't think it's going to work. What should we do? And of course, Otomo, as we talked about before, uh, loves to pitch anything he doesn't want to do to Satoshi Khan. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's like, yo, get Satoshi Khan to do it. So that's how uh, Khan got on the project. Khan said, yes, the project hadn't read the book, reads the book, hates it. <laughs> Some real Kubrick energy going on here. I really like it. I don't know if Yoshiaku Takeuchi is is Japan's um Stephen King. I don't think that is the case, but like there is certainly like that ener- that like absolute contempt of the real story in it. Like mm-hmm. you can tell. So Toshi Khan says yes to it and then uh goes to the producer and says, Listen, how much can I change? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, here's, here's a quote that Satoshi Khan gave uh, in an interview in America. He said, quote, I was given three keywords, idol, horror, and fan, and was completely free as a director as long as I stuck to those overarching themes, mm-hmm. uh, which makes perfect sense. So he needs to rewrite it. He hires a writer called Sadayuki Mirai, who, uh, previous to writing the screenplay, had worked in PR for idol groups on the recommendation of the producer. Stoshi Khan is not credited as the writer of Perfect Blue, but I guess he proposed a ton of ideas for Mirai, and they worked together closely on the script. Sadayuki Mirai, by the way, Ian, went on to be a prolific anime screenwriter after this. Mm-hmm. Do you know a few of the other things he's done? Well, I believe the big name is Cowboy Bebop. Correct, he did Cowboy Bebop. Uh, not every episode. Uh, but he did do a couple of the fan favorite episodes, most notably Poirot Le Fou. Uh, right. Which the is insane m- clown murderer. <laughs> In retrospect, Poirot Le Fou is totally him like recycling ideas from Perfect Blue. Mm-hmm. Visually speaking, right? Right. Like the jumping at the end with the umbrella and the stabbing. I'm like, I, I watched the ending. I'm like, oh, this is your dry run for Poirot Le Fou. He also did a less well-known series called Boogie Pop Phantom. Not familiar with that one. I have the DVD. I haven't rewatched it since I was in college. I want to because I I can't speak to the quality right now with you on the phone, but I'm going to be honest. uh, Boogie Pop Phantom is obviously a huge 
influence on Paranoia Agent. Interesting. Okay. Uh, we'll get into it when we talk about Paranoia Agent, but like stick that behind your hat. Perf- uh, Boogie Pop Phantom. Uh, remember it. Anyway, so things they add to the script. The whole idea of double bind is not in the original fucking novel. That's Mariah and Khan. That feels so crucial to like the texture of this movie is like the story within a story, like blurring between the reality of the stage, the reality backstage, and then the reality of like the TV show, like the looseness between those things is like, to me, essential for perfect blue to be perfect blue. So that's kind of like remarkable to me that it's not in the novel. Oh, just, just wait to the things they added and, and what that does. Just wait, but pausing on double bind for a second, um, I know that uh, previously we talked about uh, how much it reminded you of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's specifically from like the framing of at least when we the first thing we see of it is like two detectives, one male, one female talking about like a serial killer that is like stealing women's skin to appear as a woman in the world, which is like, I think a pretty overt reference to silence of the lambs and Jodie Foster's name comes up later in the movie. It feels to me like they're kind of putting like making an overt reference, at least to me. It, well, it is because as it turns out, um, I didn't know silence of the lambs was a giant hit in Japan. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, there was like, a. a a bubble of interest in Japan after it came out in detective thrillers from America. So Twin Peaks was a huge hit in Japan. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise me at all. (laughs) X-Files, huge, huge hit in Japan. And like you, like as we talked about in our last season, uh, Twin Peaks had some weird interpollinating with Evangelion, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So same DNA pulling from the same well. Right. As you pointed out, like the fact that the killer is not known in double bind and in fact is not even written <laughs> at the start of when we get introduced to the show, like the, the writers don't even know who the killer is feels also very Twin Peaksian. Yeah, it's totally it's and like pulling from pulling from real life to like inform what's happening the way that like, you know, David Lynch didn't didn't know who the killer in Twin Peaks was and then someone uh saw in a reflection haha mm-hmm. the cameraman and he had to hire that cameraman to be bob <laughs> right yeah, yeah yeah just like that sort of again that porous nature between the reality of real life and the film totally so so there there you go all that's like clearly it's in the water and probably all of that stuff informs stuff we were talked about seven usual suspects stuff like that Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think like Lynch is kind of the, the big daddy of a lot of dorm core stuff, even though none of his movies really qualify in and of themselves. They're like a, a cultural touchstone that you can see a lot of the like darker shit that happens in nineties media kind of like emanating out from his movies. Sure. Um, I got another quote here from Khan in a, I think a different interview with Ann America quote, the Chinese box construction of a play within a play was completed at the scripting stage. The real changes in construction came at the storyboarding stage because that allowed us to emphasize things that weren't really brought out in the script. Things that can be done in writing are best completed in writing, but we ended up changing our portrayal of the villain 
in the storyboarding stage. In the mm-hmm. original script, Uchida, the fan, was a major character, but he hardly did anything, and we couldn't expect the audience to get interested in a character who just acted suspicious. So we actually changed him into a character that committed murders. Mm-hmm. I think there's a limited number of actual murders that he does, but the implication is certainly that he is the one doing the majority of the murders in the movie. For sure. I mean, Khan's also said, I don't know if I have a quote about this, but he said multiple times that when people said, oh, it blurs the reality between delusion, uh, the line between delusion and reality, you don't know what she's imagining she isn't. Uh, Khan actually rejects that. He says that like in every scene, he's like, I know what's a delusion. I know what isn't. There is a real answer for all of it. And you can tell was his interpretation of perfect blue. I agree with that. Like 90%. There's like one or two scenes where I'm not quite sure what's going on. And we'll probably get to those. Yeah, I, I feel the same. And I think the movie's probably stronger for it. While we're going, while we're going on, uh, sorry to be just blabbing at you, but I just need to spit these factoids out. <laughs> get it um, out. The animation was split between Khan at Madhouse and a studio called Onarai, which was founded by a man named Hiroaki Inoue, who was a former Gynax guy who worked on Evangelion. Mm. Wow. It just, the connections never cease. I guess it's a pretty small industry when you really get down to it. This is what I'm trying to get at with this story about Khan. It's all just this, it's the same 20 dudes. Yeah. <laughs> All this shit we love, we're like, oh my god, how did like one country come up with like all this like amazing like imagination enriching uh, imagery and storytelling? It's not even. It's not the country. It's not about Japan. It's just these fucking guys, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, why did Scotland and like Northern England reinvent like comics in the eighties, or why did like San Francisco become right. the thrash metal scene? It's just like it's like a. a group of like maybe 20 people in each case you know it's one dorm floors verse of lo- worth of losers that's it. right <laughs> that's all it takes <laughs> take that home listeners if you have 19 other friends just as sick and twisted as you are and they're good at things maybe you too can change the world you know by the guy uh is the guy who did the motorcycle slide nakira no shit wow he, he does like the cana- the ultimate motorcycle move mm-hmm. that's him um, and he also did all the flying broomsticks in Kiki's delivery service. So he's done like some of the most copied movements in anime history. Like that, that motorcycle slide is like homaged repetitively throughout anime history ever since it appeared in that movie. That must be, that must feel pretty good. <laughs> $20 says at least one person who listens to this episode has fucked up their kneecap trying to do it in real life and failed. <laughs> The key animator, Takeshi Honda, was the lead artist on Evangelion. (laughs) Unbelievable. Same fucking dudes. Anyway, so when Khan agrees to do Perfect Blue, it was supposed to be an OVA. Right, so picking up where he left off with JoJo's, more of the same, but he's in charge of all of it from a director's point of view this time around. Totally. But here's where, just like with the earthquake, shit from real life, like, just gives him a just like makes his like he wasn't born with this directorial quality he had to learn it and he had to learn it because of circumstance here's why they slashed the budget mid-production and said we're gonna make it a movie wow Mm -hmm. so he planned multiple episodes of plot with it all like tightly compacted and working together in the way the movie is and they just come in part way through i think while they're storyboarding they just come in they're like oh you got 90 minutes max Mm-hmm. So 
crunch time. Yeah. Exactly. Khan says they throw out almost 100 scenes. Uh, uh, I mean, as a fan of this movie, I can't help but like fantasize about all of the good shit that was left on the cutting room floor. But I wonder if it is all good shit. Like, I think so much of this movie comes down to its leanness that it's like maybe cutting all that stuff like made the movie as good as it is. Right. I mean, well, so here's the thing, right? So like Khan's philosophy when they're making, when they're deciding on the cuts is he says anything that involved the passage of time or anything that was gradual is what they threw out. Mm -hmm. He's, Mm -hmm. he's, this is literally like journalism 101 bullshit. Like if I've got a hanging Chad, if I've got just one hard return because I need to make it fit on the page, I'm going to cut the previous sentence, even if it makes less sense. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've done this. I've done this same fucking process. And so that's, and, and he cuts mostly scene changes. So this is where we get this like devoted aesthetic of everything is a match cut. Right. For as, as much as possible, like everything that could be a match cut is a match cut. Right. It's exactly where it, he has to edit the entire movie. Like he's still doing the world fight. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a, I think it lends to this um, kind of claustrophobic quality that the movie has. The fact that there are so few shots that are like establishing shots or scene, like scenes that take place outside of a very small number of places uh, and that we transition not through the passage of time, but like these immediate kind of like clicking from one link to another on Wikipedia, you know, sort of experience of like falling down to like the rabbit hole of Mima's consciousness. Like, so there's this one absolutely bonkers series of match cuts that I think about, like after the photographer is murdered, like as we're watching the murder taking place, we get like one establishing shot of like Tokyo at night with sirens going. It match cuts to a siren, but it turns out that it's the siren on a car that a kid is driving. The car passes a cham poster and then we match cut to cham. Yeah. It's just like, uh, (laughs) like how do you keep up with that? It's just the movie moves so quickly as a result of this, like need to just like crunch it into a, a movie shape. (laughs) <laughs> can you imagine being one of Khan's animators and he's like all right uh i need a kid go past the poster and then he's just gonna make sure you show your last frame to him because he's gonna be doing the first frame of the dance sequence the dance sequence by the way will be 10 seconds long go. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine like being there in the fucking studio like listening to Khan telling you what to do like uh okay <laughs> Side note, here's a fucked up thing. Think about the the fight scene between uh, Mima and, and Uchida and Mr. Mimania. They were so short on budget that Khan and his wife would come in with a Polaroid camera to take the reference posing photos for the animators. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, God. Man, that... Yeah. That is a powerful couple. They, 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 a lot of, a lot of heavy conversations, I'm sure, between the two of them, you know? I'm more thinking about like what it's like to be like the desk admin, like who's got to hold the Polaroid camera where Khan's like in there with his trench coat and his wife, you're like, no, babe, leg, leg up over my shoulder. I'm choking you like this. Okay, snap the photo. I'm choking up my wife. Snap the photo. Jesus. 
<laughs> right. It's like in the Satoshi Kon version of making the movie perfectly like that is definitely the thing. Like you would get all of the people like shooting it, all of the, you know, the hands on deck uh, that go into making a movie like this, which is like one of my favorite things about his movies. It's just like they're filled with like working stiffs, you know? It's true. And and yeah, I mean, the, the, the only other like interesting thing about the production that I wanted to bring out is he he purposefully used the three quarters aspect ratio when framing scenes. This is maybe too movie nerdy, but let's just do it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, the three quarters aspect ratio is usually what was used on uh, TV. Cathode ray TV. Like now everyone has a widescreen TV. This is another one of those zoomers don't know thing, right? But like mm -hmm. shit made for TV until like 10 years ago was all just square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it's not this like HBO look that we now have today. No, he made it the three quarters aspect ratio on purpose. So he's like, even if you're watching it in a theater, he, wa he wants you to feel like you're watching a screen. Mm hmm. Yeah. And that allows for so many of the really screwy jumps between like, what is, what are, are we watching something that the characters are watching on TV are we watching the shooting of a scene that's going to be on TV? Or are we watching things that are taking place beyond that? Like the, the movie gets like progressively longer and longer in how it's suspending you out of the reality of the world. And that's allowed by having this like TV like, you know, aspect ratio and style for pretty much the entire time. Yeah. I mean, and, and, it's interesting because like the, the three quarters aspect ratio, I think has a flattening effect, but at the same time, it, it, and it is flat. Like you can tell this movie was cheap. Like the, the character cells like are kind of jumpy. Yeah. There's that one scene in the very beginning where like the three nerds that we were talking about before the Greek chorus are only their mouths are moving and their entire cells are just kind of like lightly right. glitching in place. But I think a lot of the sort of like blandness or emptiness of certain certain shots is made up just by the amount of other great detail work that goes in. Like you can tell when he's like really going in with like showing you all the details of like Mima's real life room feels like an apartment that a human being actually lives in, which is just, you know, that's another thing that I feel like is carried over into Cowboy Bebop is just like all of the, you know, interior yes. scenes of people's spaceships just feel like lived environments in such beautiful ways. And I think that this movie, when it decides to really show you that is really serious about showing you that. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And anyway, that's, you know, that's sort of like the story of, of the, the crazy story of the production of this, of this movie, which no one believed in and went on to be this like career defining hit. Yeah, I mean, thinking about some of the other, like, most inspired choices, like, they all stem from this. So it's got, like, an opening scene, and then it jumps forward in time, like, after the concert to when Mima's returning to her apartment. And it jumps back and forth, like, through these incredibly complicated match cuts between the concert itself and mima experiencing returning home from the concert that kind of montage is like you could just play those two scenes sequentially and the story would functionally be the same but it wouldn't feel the same it wouldn't have that same kind of kinetic energy from one moment to the next 
And I don't think you can do the, like, the take two joke of, you know, the repetition of shooting the scene at the harbor and all of that, that whole sequence, like that whole chunk of the movie that I think anyone who's watched it knows what I'm talking about, where it really feels like your DVD is skipping or something. Like, it's just... (laughs) like so confusing the first few times that you've watched the movie, like all of the most inspired stuff to me, like all flows from the creative limitations that are set by the production of it. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, but at the same time, perhaps I'm, I'm maybe over ascribing that just because it's like, it's so impossible for me to think of this movie being shaped in a different way that these sort of structural limitations just feel like a really interesting key into helping explain how and why the movie is shaped the way that it's shaped. I don't want to like downgrade anyone's ingenuity in the face of those limitations or any of the stuff that was going to be the same, no matter what. I just think it's like, you're right that learning the production history is really helpful or revel, not maybe not revelatory, but at least adds a lot of color to the experience of rewatching the movie. One thing I, I noticed when I was rewatching it was how much he uses re- like reflections as a visual motif. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed more things like being reflected in screens every time I watch it, which in a sense is like it's a that's a really cheap thing to do if you're in animation, right? You just reuse the cell and then like up the transparency on it and put superimpose it behind the other thing, right? It like it it doesn't seem that hard, so it's ingenious in that in that sense but it like so much of the film is about not just skipping through time but also uh reflecting on what you've just seen Mm -hmm. right and having that kind of um uncertainty like tell me if this was your experience but when you watch the movie and you get to the part where mima is approached on the street by a modeling agency right that to me is like the first time that I feel like the movie got me because like a lot of the play with like what's real and what isn't early on is, is pretty obvious or like resolves fairly quickly. But that scene goes on for several seconds too long to feel entirely fake and feels like just real enough to the world of the movie that you're like, oh, I, this movie just got me, you know, and it only gets more severe from there. Like there's the the longest stretch of double bind that we see it's edited. Like it's like a Satoshi Kon movie. (laughs) Like you get the cut of the fashion photographers leading to the, uh, the crime scene photographers, which is like that. I mean, that's just the movie neon demon right there. Right. (laughs) Just just born out of that one match cut. And, but like, even then it takes you a second to realize like, Oh, we're only seeing this because the managers and Mima are watching this episode like why otherwise would we be seeing this much of the tv show it also seems like like the movie is sort of like mirrored in its in its middle right because like at at the beginning you have the scene of like the the men in the masks that's the (laughs) first (laughs) sequence right and you get this like power rangers stage play at the start of the movie a super sentai type thing and and like that might feel like the only thing that that and like the the guy trying to the talent agent on the street might be the only sequences that seem superfluous if if it weren't for the fact that like obviously Khan is and, and like there's even like a a DVD segment I saw where he talks about making perfect blue and he he says right he's like 
what I'm te- the reason I put that thing in the middle or at the beginning, the reason I put that thing in the beginning is because I, I want you to know that this is going to be a movie about people who wear masks, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then, people who watch them and people who watch them. And then the last scene in the movie is her watching Rumi through the glass window of, of the psychiatric ward Rumi, who used to be an idol and she's wearing sunglasses mm-hmm. and, and it's that it's you're you're meant to believe that she's achieved some kind of um realism right that she's achieved some sort of like singularity within her own personality but the but the existence of the sunglasses implies that there's still at least like a, a fragment of the mask still on her but mm, at the same mm-hmm. time she's she's gone from being the person on stage wearing the revealing outfit to like now she's the person who's incognito observing Right. There's also another in that same shot, you have uh, Rumi looking into a mirror that we're seeing through that pane of glass. And in the mirror, we can see that she sees herself as Mima still. Right. So the the constant use of mirrors feels like very much a stylistic thing. Like we inside uh, of Mima's apartment, a lot of the action is done like through we see her and then we see her reflected in various reflective objects around the house. And like more and more reflective surfaces keep like showing up in this movie. Like the floors get more reflective over time. There's like a lot of water. There's, there's tons of stuff with that. Uh, And what's interesting is for the majority of the movie, those reflective surfaces are often the source of like anxiety or where the, the unreal comes in. Like the scene of her on the subway where it's her reflection in the, you know, the window on the door that then comes to life and like confronts her or looking out of a car window and seeing the same and like seeing delusions through these reflective surfaces. But then by the end of it, during that like big climactic chase scene, it's the mirror that shows the truth. Right. uh, Which is a really interesting turn. And I think it's kind of emblematic of a lot of Khan's feelings about it is that he's not saying like mirrors equal bad forever. It's like, if you don't know who you are looking in the mirror is going to be a source of anxiety. But if you do know who you are, they can show you something real of yourself. He seems he has more of an ambivalent feeling about a lot of this stuff than it. I think it necessarily comes across on first blush. At least that's like my interpretation of it. My interpretation of the mirrors at the end where like, it's only in the mirror that you see that it's actually roomy, like out of breath chasing her, not some weird phantom other Mima, like bouncing after her. Um, my interpretation of that is, I, I think that's similar to, to what we got at the end of the last Evangelion movie. Like, I, I think this is him like expressing his worldview that like at its best narrative fiction reflects some sort of truth in reality that you, that you may not be able to, perceive most of the time and i think like Mm -hmm. the reality he's showing is is um what is behind making entertainment how difficult making entertainment is how you know this person who might seem like an angelic or or like preternaturally you know beautiful figure to you is a struggling person living in a fucking studio apartment yeah yeah i love that like mima's not really famous She's like famous enough to have punishers outside of the office and like have people blogging about her. But, you know, having been in the uh, in the orbit of indie rock for the last decade, I can tell you, you don't need to be very famous for that to happen to you. Like, not that it's happened to me personally, but 
you know, I, I know people for whom I think are relatively equal levels of famous as Mima appears to be that that would happen to. Even people whose big moment of their career for that for that month or week is playing an afternoon show to a crowds of tens of people get punished. Yes. This we know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, well, is there anything else we want to talk about? There's just like so much. I mean, we can keep trying to like stab at this for a while, but maybe we should talk about uh, the, the fact that this movie takes place sort of adjacent both to the TV industry as well as to the idol industry, which feels like maybe something that might be sort of a, a cultural disconnect for American audiences. Cause it's it, the idol industry is similar to pop music in America, but has a lot of like things about it that are very distinctly different that maybe we should touch on. This is a good transition. I think, I think that's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, so, but the big difference of course, between like, your history with indie rock and, and I history, you know, writing for places like decibel magazine and whatever the, the big difference is I like pop music. I understand pop music, even like semi-independent pop music in America. Um, and I understand the phenomenon of like having sort of like grown dudes who are really into pop stars. I also stand Carly Rae Jepsen. I get it, but they're, or Charlie XCX maybe now more, mm-hmm. but like it does seem to me that like the idol phenomenon that they're exploring so heavily in this movie, I see the similarities to like working in indie and working in metal, but it, it does seem like something that, that doesn't exactly translate cross cultures. It translates enough for me to get it, but there's gotta be nuances there that I don't get. Um, so here's 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 your chance to punish me with research because I know you looked into this. <laughs> I, I I'm going to sort of be cribbing from a variety of sources that will will link in the uh, description. Big huge shouts out to Rio from the side of Japan who uh, I emailed with back and forth a bit just to get some questions about like the music in Perfect Blue to get a sense of like how period appropriate it was and if there's any sort of like cultural significance of the particular sounds that they take. So. From what Rio has told me, the specifically like high energy and like Euro house kind of sounds that both versions of Cham use, very much period appropriate. That stuff was on, was being, you know, pumped out by the bigger studios and being performed by the much bigger idols of the time that. And it would make sense, basically, as Rio is telling it, that that style would then trickle down to the much more like independent and low budget idols like Cham. Uh, and we'll have links to a variety of the songs that he sent my way so that you can give it a listen to yourself and compare and contrast. I think it holds up. He also pointed out that like Cham's image in the beginning when they're a trio is very similar to uh, the idol group Wink and that it would be sort of a bit outdated by the time of the movie. So that Cham's reinvention is more like, I don't know. They always struck me as like having this like very destiny's child kind of look as a duo. Right. That would be like, it would make sense that that second group would be uh, a bit more popular. He also linked to Nami Amuro and super monkeys. Uh, 
which is I he sent me one of their videos and it looks very much like the same outfit that the duo version of Cham are wearing. The sh- sort of short version of my understanding of idol music as it differs from Western pop music is that it is there's an amateurism that is very much part of the sound and also the appeal of idol music. Like they're not supposed to sound like good singers in the way that like up and coming pop stars in America very much have like, you know, you're supposed to be some like have a very distinctive voice or, you know, you're doing like club tracks or what have you in idol music. The idea that it could sort of just be like, the girl next door or the girl that you go to school with is sort of the appeal, which I think also explains the, uh, the grody male fan base that you're talking about. Like there's this kind of sense of idols being the like representatives of various small towns who get like a chance towards stardom. It's more along the lines of like American idol Uh, tellingly than it is something like more uh like top down pop music you know what i mean like there's a difference between like the the pop industry sort of like putting someone over versus the experience of like rooting for your fave to succeed and there's a lot of really cruel details that i really like in the way that this movie portrays the idol industry like when Mima is talking to her mom on the phone and she's like, Oh, your uncle buys like 20 copies of every single when they come out. It's like, that's a, a real thing. Uh, in a lot of ways, the like idol fandom pre dated and kind of in- inspired the way that like Stan culture and hive cult, like that sort of way of running up the numbers on your favorite artist by like doing all sorts of like streaming hacks and like, you know, the like Stan Luna hashtag campaign that like blew that particular K-pop group up. All of this kind of stems from the idol fandom in particular, AKP 48 are the like sort of the masters of this, that like drove this strategy into the ground of asking fans to go out and buy as many copies as possible to sort of create this like perpetual loop of keeping the songs that are popular, popular. And it's like this kind of astroturfing of fame that that one little line kind of like suggests something that's extremely true about the industry. Um, let me think a few other examples. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like even the the Greek chorus talking about like, oh, I bet like the Mima fans are losing their shit over this photo shoot. It's like that's the same thing. Like if you're scrolling through Twitter and you you see like in the suggested topics like the k-pop stands who are out there like debating which of their favorite members of a particular group is and posting fan cams and all of that like that all feels of a piece to the particular type of of pop fandom that uh perfect blue is critiquing and uh exploring and is sort of born out of sure sure that makes a lot of sense um with regard to the, with regard to like what you're talking about, like the the scenes of of her sort of like disregarding her quote unquote wholesome, maybe slightly outdated image, and and taking on uh you know these hypersexualized photo shoots for whatever reason. Now this last time I rewatched it, that made me think about the reaction to Billie Eilish's cover shoot for Vogue. Mm-hmm. I think that she just did where where you know she, but that's sort of like. That's like three levels of like commenting on the the commenting of the convention because right. it, it, it reminded me of like Spring Breakers 
of, you know, like Selena Gomez and Vanessa Hudgens going from being like these kind of like Disney stars to then being in a, you know, fucked up druggy crime movie and only wearing bikinis for the whole thing and whatnot. Right. Um, or like Miley Cyrus going from born in the USA to like twerking on, at the VMAs, like that kind of arc. That is an interesting phenomenon, but obviously like, you know, the, we're all talking about pop stars that in, in America have like way more commercial backing than Cham does. Even though like, I'm kind of sitting here like, Oh, they did so bad. They only hit 83 on the charts. I'm like, they're not direct releasing their music on Bandcamp. Shut up. <laughs> Stop whining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also love that it's... You can see, like, what things happen in the movie that cause Mima's psyche to crack slightly. And I think it's really telling that the first time we start to really see, like, the fake uh, Cham Mima start appearing in her hallucinations is after the new cham achieves success without her. Yeah. Um, that's, be- that's totally, that's totally key. I want to zero in on one thing though. Really quick. Mm-hmm. This is a really important question. Ian. Is cham's music good to you? <sighs> okay. Um, that you I can- need to think about this already. Well, <laughs> I will say that I, I kind of think angel of love is a pretty fun pop song that chorus has a lot of like moving parts that i think are pretty neat and i love the the fact that there's a guitar solo that's cool uh it's high energy it's you know really jamming there's a lot of cool stuff panning back and forth the vocal melodies are well written um alone but at at ease it's kind of funny i like that song a fair amount less so i actually i'm really grateful for rio for kind of giving us some context that shows that like oh this actually was like more poppy or like it would make sense that this is the track that kind of blows up um i also think that part of the reason that mima freaks out so much is that duo cham kind of achieve what she's trying to do much more in a much more over the top way much more naturally with alone but at ease where they're like we're going to be casual we're grown up now we're not wearing these like pink frilly like princess outfits we're we look like we're going to go to the club and we're going to like sing songs about taking it easy and like being ourselves and that is the thing that like causes as it's not just the success but it's the success on their own terms that I think really uh, throws Mima into a tizzy. But like, no, I mean, Cham, they're no perfume. <laughs> like, if we're going to be comparing them to like other idol groups, it's like, it's you know, not even close to something as like good as perfume or Kiri Pomu Pomu or, you know, there's a variety of other idol groups that make like significantly better music than this. So look elsewhere. In fact, look at uh, this side of Japan for, you know, weekly updates for much more interesting shit than what Cham were doing in the mid nineties. I need to check out more of what Rio is doing. My only insight into anything remotely idol related is like everyone who played kingdom hearts. I like listened to that one Utada Hikaru song a few times. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and then we listened to a, a, like a bunch of other, uh, Utada Hikaru songs, a bunch more <laughs> in the last season when we were right. covering the rebuilds. But that is a slightly different thing because that's like a, a sort of like transcontinental pop music kind of thing. Right. But. She, she even at that time, like, okay, if you're like playing the opening credit sequence to a Disney and Square Enix video game, 
Right. Like clearly you you've already got like you know, there's some there's some currency pumping through the machine behind Utada Hikaru, right? Mm-hmm. That she mm-hmm. gets to the end credits to the last Evangelion movie, like says I, something. I believe they go by non uh I believe they use they them, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yes, Utada Hikaru came out as non binary in June of two thousand twenty one. Congratulations to them. They make great music. Go listen to it. I'm into it. I wish I'd known that when we briefly talked about them at the last Evangelion episode. There is less gender stuff, I think, to talk about in Perfect Blue. Well, perhaps we should talk about it, because I do think that there is, and this will probably come up more when we talk about the successors of this movie. There's, there is a, a fair amount that this movie is playing with like the male gaze. And the fact that it is right. a woman at the center of the story is to me very crucial. Like there's one of, one of my most, one of my favorite like subtle details that I, I missed entirely until this most recent rewatch is very early on after Mima has read Mima's room for the first time, the blog for the first time. And she sees like the note about uh, like the way that she walks off of the subway step that she always goes with her left foot first. The next time she's on the subway, she's looking around. She notices like a man looking at her and then looking away when she turns her head. And it's like less than a second of screen time. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's true. Like she would be getting leered at, you know. Right. And so much of the pressure of like specifically the way that men are looking at her and writing the stories that she's playing out in the TV show and directing her photo shoots and, you know, kind of managing her career, I think it, the, there is, uh, there, there's perhaps not much gender play, but the particular gender of the characters in the movie, I do think is pretty crucial. Like, I don't think you could gender swap this movie and it would be the same thing. Totally. And I, and I will say, at least with regard to Mima's room, and I think this is going to come back up later with Khan, he has a remarkably good grasp of what it's like to be harassed on the internet. I've never been harassed on the internet as a woman, but I, I have been harassed and I have, I do know many people who, you know, I've been in close communication with them as they've been going through periods of harassment via, you know, internet technology yeah. that he had such like a good beat on that in the era of Netscape navigator does speak to your point, right? Right. Interestingly enough, did you know that slight tangent? Did you know that Khan started a blog while making Perfect Blue after he wrote the thing into the movie? And he's like, huh, if I should know how Mima's room works, maybe I should start a blog of my own. So somewhere out there, maybe it's gone, but there's the Khan Angel Fire page that he would update every so often. That's beautiful. I hope that the relentless crush of time that is the internet has not wiped this from the earth. If we can find it, we'll include it. I I don't think we're going to find it, though. Good luck. If you've had an archive of it, fandom, please bring it to me. Yes. Go forth. Luck. Be my ring wraiths. I demand the pieces of Satoshi Khan's blog that I will not be able to translate. Mm-hmm. I, I would also like just to put out like Mimania's particular sense of ownership over Mima, I think is also very like crucial to a certain kind of like male uh, belief in the domination over like the pop idols or the like famous women that they like, I think Jodie Foster is also a relevant 
example because like she had a real life stalker who tried to kill Ronald Reagan because of her appearance in Taxi Driver. You it's know, true. and I feel like Mimania is sort of a stand in for that. And when he confronts Mima at the end, it's it is not just like, oh, you're the fake Mima, I'm going to kill you, but he does still he tries to have his cake and eat it too, to put it in the most like uh, disgusting way possible um, where it's not just like getting rid of the fake Mima, but also like trying to possess the fake Mima in some ways that I think is like, you can't not have that weight of the, uh, the femaleness of the movie hanging over it. You know, it's just like, it's part of the text to me. Granted. However, I, I, I just uh, let me play devil's advocate for a second, which is like mm-hmm. a, a, a bad rhetorical thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I think Khan is kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too. Also, um, let me give you a quote. This is an, another quote from an interview with Khan, um, where he talked about why he wrote the movie the way that he did. He said, uh, a lot of animation is extremely samey. There's only the one tradition, one style of filmmaking, one set of tools. In manga, we have many, many different genres, from children's comics to material drawn exclusively for adults. There's an infinite variety of subjects and genres, but it seemed to me that anime was almost nothing but sci-fi robots and beautiful little girls, and it just gets boring after a while. Sometimes you hear creators complaining that they didn't have the budget to do what they wanted or that their best ideas were canceled, but ultimately, I think that most of these people do what they do because that's what they like. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it is a little sad, and that's why I deliberately tried to handle perfect blue from a different point of view he says that's his quote okay mm-hmm. that 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 speaks to me that like I, I i'm not certain that he's like telling the movie from this like female point of not female from this woman-centered point of view it, i i i it seems a little bit in bad faith just judging by that quote mm-hmm. is one thing the other thing is we talked about the dorm core movies, right? And we, and we brought up other, other related like films like neon demon, right? Mm-hmm. The, all these movies are, are operating from what I think of as this, like the, the post Hitchcock milieu, right? I love Alfred Hitchcock. He's maybe my favorite director of, of all time. I love his movies this is not an an unusual or unpopular opinion, right? But it's also like a known thing. Hitchcock, not nice to his actresses in Mm -hmm. particular. Hitchcock movies, not, not the most feminist thing in the world, even for the time. Like even, like even when vertigo was coming out, there were people like, this is a little creepy. It's obviously a masterpiece, but it's a little creepy, right? This is kind of like a movie about being a creep. And even I think like a a slightly more humanist or refined Hitchcock, like maybe someone like David Fincher, right? There's interviews with David Fincher where he outright says, he's like, I think of film viewers essentially as perverts. He's like, and I'm a pervert and I make perverted shit. That's what I do. Right. I, I don't think that you can make and I love this kind of movie, right? I love these psychological thrillers, but I just don't know that you can, even Satoshi Khan can like completely untangle some of the male gazy misogynist shit out of it. I don't think that makes it a bad movie. It's very entertaining. It's obviously very well made. I love talking about it. I'm going to rewatch it again in the future, you know, but mm-hmm. 
Well, so like maybe let's let's dig into the stuff that you find distasteful, like about the like what parts of that Hitchcockian lineage is Cohn not able to extricate himself from. There's still a lot of upskirt shots in this movie. Yes, that is true. There's one that like almost glides by you because of how complicated the frame is, but he does like a shot where you see the mirror in the room as a way right. of getting you. It's like the most like artistic like um like haute couture version of the panty shot in an anime, but it's there. Like it's not you can't ignore that it is there. Right. I had trouble with like similar things like this in Evangelion, but it, but at least Anno didn't try to gussy it up. Mm-hmm. You know, at least at least he's making a joke. He's like, "Yeah, fan service, whatever." Tits, they're fourteen. I don't care. He's like, "Buy my fucking action figure." You know, I'm I'm having a breakdown thinking about my place in the universe and the nature of God. <laughs> here's here's some titties. In, in a way, I respect that more. I, I kind of respect the whatever fuckitness more than the haute couture. Let me just frame this very intimately part because I'm like, if you're going to all the trouble of framing it intimately, you could have just cut it out. Right. Yeah. If you're if you're crunched for time and if you're trying to make a movie that has no bullshit on it, that's a good right. place to start. Right. And there is one other thing. And this is not a problem that Anno has because he doesn't depict any plus sized people. But I, there, Khan has a weird relationship with body weight. Mm-hmm. So we're particularly talking about like Rumi. Right. Becoming of becoming the villain, but also the way that her villainy is depicted in specifically like the final scenes. Like it's not really something that comes up at all until that point. And then the final parts of the movie do lean pretty heavily on. And I think like me mania also falls into this a bit. So it's, it's not like me mania is like a pretty hideous looking character and is meant to like evoke a certain kind of like bad vibes emanating off of him, which is one thing, but by comparison, because Rumi is paired with this like dreamlike angelic, perfect version of Mima as well. It really highlights the the ways in which she is not that right in a lot of like the mirrored shots and like the scene of her getting choked, which I think is like, a really great shot in that like the fat like Mima's face like morphing into Rumi's face is like live action movies can't do that the same way like this is yeah it's like an incredible use of the medium but there absolutely is a certain degree of like look how weird it is that this like older woman is dressing like this you know right with the with the socks pulled up to her calves right and there's I think there's pro not more, but there's like a lot of weird upskirt shots of Rumi when Rumi's in the new cham outfit chasing her. And they're all framed as like kind of gross. Right. Yeah. That bugs me. I, I, I that bugs me as like just a human being. Right. It's mm-hmm. not a problem in Otto's work because there, there are no people who are thicker than a pencil in Otto's <laughs> weird post-apocalyptic world. Maybe they're all hungry. Uh, there's not enough credit. <laughs> Uh, biscuits to go around, right? right um, yeah. But it's not just that, and we're, we're gonna—I'm gonna point it out in some of Khan's later work, right? But he does this thing where where he does use larger people, and they are almost always portrayed as in some way delusional or unintelligent, as a negative. 
Yes. Um, I think and, there are counter qualities to some of the examples that you're talking about. That's true. But it is there, you know, like his, his dedication to using realistic looking people in his, uh, his movies does not, does not wipe away what he uses them to do necessarily. Right. This is not a knock on the movie. I like them. This is not a knock on people who like the movie. I think this is a great film. It's a work of art. I think it's a masterpiece. Right. And again, that's not like a, this is not an unusual opinion among people who've seen this movie. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying to my thinking, and I like Satoshi Khan, but when I see the way that he frames Rumi in this movie, when I see the way that he frames Mr. Me mania, and when I see the, some of the quotes that he gives that are all like translated by people. So it's other people giving their own input. I can't, I don't have like a direct line into his brain and he's sadly dead. So we can't clarify any of this. Right. But from my thinking, I think that there was maybe some contempt in Satoshi Khan's heart mm-hmm. for, for mankind that I, that I, you know, and lots of great people have contempt. I love Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock had a lot of contempt. Um, I love Stanley Kubrick. Famously, there's like, people are still arguing about like, was Stanley Kubrick some sort of like inhuman automaton? I don't think he was right but it's it's still like a battle people have over these artists public perception right absolutely yeah you know so from my perspective i just think i in a way i I respected david fincher more for just being like yeah my audience they're fucking sickos i'm a (laughs) sicko too that's why i do sicko shit i'm like well look he's being knives out about it i i respect that Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I think like one of Khan's defining qualities as a filmmaker is a degree of slightly more ambivalence about these kind of binaries than you'd expect. Like, I think that Rumi yeah. is more of a sympathetic character than this movie could have painted her as. Like, yes, she yes. does go insane and she does kill multiple people. But in the scenes that were with her, I think we're really supposed to identify with her concerns about Mima's career. Like when the, like the rape scene is tabled at the meeting, I think the way that it's shot, at least like for me watching it, it's like, I also am like, Oh no, in the same way that Rumi is. And having that concern over like, you know, there's this kind of like devil angel quality of the two managers on, Mm -hmm. Uh, on Mima's shoulders and kind of the clever thing about the movie is ultimately the one that you thought was the angel turns out to be a murderer. And the one that you thought is maybe pushing her in a direction that is bad for her career turns out to kind of be not necessarily proved like entirely correct and is entirely like absolved of maybe being a bit too naive about the effect of the rape scene on, on Mima and the effect of like the photo shoots and whatnot, but is, is more of a, you know, it's not an evil person. No, he's concerned about her. You know, there's that scene in the car where he, he like, he just doesn't know how to express his concern for her well-being, yeah. right? He's, he's like, maybe emotionally repressed in a way that prevents him from, like, doing that appropriately. And the other thing is, is, like, let's, let's be honest, like, Rumi, for all of her angelic motherly qualities on the surface, right, does not seem that confident in Mima's ability as an actress. Yeah, that's very true. 
it's it's very much this kind of like I I, th- I see it almost more as like rather than a morality thing, it's like a nostalgia versus uh, the future kind of thing. Like so much of yes. Rumi's character is rooted in her desire for like, and I think this is a, co- I, a to go back to the idol industry thing. From my understanding, based on a few YouTube videos I've watched, like I'll include this uh, very short video that kind of summarizes the entirety of the idol industry history that I think was astoundingly well done. Uh, also, uh, Tim Rogers's video on Tokimeki Memorial touches on this. I just want to say Tim Rogers on this podcast. So, you know where I'm coming from. Um, they both touch on this is that the, in the nineties, the idol industry seemed to kind of have somewhat of an identity crisis where a lot of idols were pushing to towards writing their own material, uh, having a more modern look. And we see that with like the updated version of Cham. And there's also this more like kind of regressive impulse at the same time to like box idols into these very clear archetypes that were beloved in the 80s and the 70s and 60s and whatnot. Uh, and I think that Rumi, her desire to protect Mima is also kind of a suffocation of the way things used to be back when perhaps Rumi was an idol you know right and, and like, she's also like a victim in that sense right of the repressiveness of the system yeah and that's why i think it's so great that at the end of the movie rumi doesn't die and she isn't like marked as pariah forever like mima still has a lot of empathy for her and still visits frequently and cares because this is a person that like means something to her life and the fact that like the only real villain is the possessive fan who's ultimately like kind of treated as somewhat impotent in a lot of ways you know he's got this like ludicrously high voice when he finally speaks and like right. doesn't successfully kill or rape mima thank god i think that that's an interesting twist that while yes he does in the moment rely on some like kind of like fat phobic crutches in his depiction of Rumi the overall depiction of Rumi as a character I think is largely sympathetic here's what I was going to say though Tadakoro gets it so bad though he gets the letter bomb on his hand here I get maimed by this outdated form of terrorism (laughs) Might as well be attacked with a bayonet. (laughs) (laughs) He gets murdered. He gets placed with his body next to this, like, terrible fucking pervert. And and people think he's, like, even the producers of, of of, of Double Bind think he's kind of, like, crazy for being like, no, 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 Mina can act. She should be an actress. She can act. He was proven right. right. He was proven He's right. proven right. The last, it's, you get this weird scene where it's like the fake of, fake out of, wow, was this all a dream? Is double bind reality this whole time? Nope. I just accidentally discovered method acting. And the whole cast stands up and claps and they're like, wow, you're a fucking great actress. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The only person who believed in her was Tadakoro. <laughs> Pouring another one out for him. Poor sod. I do think that it's it's interesting, like the you know, from the first line of double bind that Mima has to learn, it's clear that the question is like, who is she? You know? Right. And there's kind of she has to overcome, in a sense, both of her managers to self-actualize in some way. Like, she can't be forced like the reason that like 
because I, I do kind of want to make it clear how we feel about some of the like racier, sexier stuff that happens in this movie. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with like a pop star or like an actress doing a more risque photo shoot if that's what they want to do, you know? Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with like the examples we brought up previously of like Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, like wanting to take their music or their career in a more adult direction. Like that's their prerogative. The thing that I think makes it the way that it's the reason it's portrayed negatively in the movie is that Mima has no say. And in either direction, either returning to her more like chaste pop idol version or growing up into this new actor persona the fact that she's being pulled between these two managers that are kind of like dividing her she needs to overcome both of them in order to self-actualize and in order to be able to say with screaming guitar solo behind her no i'm the real me by the end right you know and they're and it's freudian they're overbearing parents Mm mm-hmm that's exactly it. Yeah. Her emotionally repressed dad and her, you know, living vicariously through her child mom. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's like, I just wanted to like make that clear in case anyone walked away thinking like, I think that the movie has a more sophisticated thing going on than like sexy, bad, childlike good, you know? It's, it's, it's presenting a different path that is more about like the individual character of Mima gaining her own power over her own career, which I think is sort of like a feminist reading of Perfect Blue, even if there are these like more, you know, regressive or outdated tropes that the movie relies on to get us to that point. Does that seem like a fair reading to you? Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. I think it's just it's very much of its time mm-hmm. and of its genre. That's all I'm saying. I don't look down with the patriarchy. I don't want to throw away my copy of Vertigo. Right. Yeah. If if it comes down to like if it comes down to like if I truly believe at some point in time it comes down to like me being a good person or me like watching Vertigo, I'll choose being a good person over Vertigo, right? I just don't think it should ever really come down to that right and and i feel the same way about perfect blue yeah if we believe that we wouldn't be doing this podcast if we're being (laughs) totally real considering almost everything we've covered yeah i mean jojo's (laughs) maybe less so but like jojo's has some weird stuff too speaking of the uh, of its timeness i just want to give a shout out to the drum and bass remix of the nightmare theme that pops up during both chase sequences yes i love drum and bass music i'm so glad that it gets a like uh, a spotlight in this film. It is so aggressively 1997. It is just like, uh, I'm in heaven. Every time that like incredibly fast drums kick in during the chase scene, I'm just like, yes, this is culture peaked here. Let, let, let's go. <laughs> every, every piece of music that Cham does not sing, I'm into. Hard-ass industrial beats, creepy, yeah. looped singing it's just ah it's great it's like his fucking hitchcock sting his like spooky thing happening sting sounds like a ministry sample i'm like (laughs) yes give it to me right like the fax machine becoming this like repetitive looping i'm into it yeah side note i just wanted to point one thing out did you see did you happen to read the title of the cham fan letter 
Oh my god, it was something really funny. Chamland or something like that? It's Chamming Bird. Chamming Bird. It's like Twitter. Does... Does... (laughs) (laughs) Fuck, you kneecapped my best punchline. Oh, I'm I'm gonna give it anyway. I'm gonna give it anyway. Take two. Here's my question. Here's my question. No, no, no. Maybe yours is better. Here's my question, though. Does Satoshi Khan think it's pronounced chum? Oh, like... Chumming bird? Oh, like chumming bird. bird. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, that's pretty bad. As long as we're talking 30 about- copies of the debut single by my new favorite teen pop trio, <laughs> Chum. Uh, as long as we're talking about like weird localization stuff, uh, shouts out to the whoever translated the news report of the screenwriter Shibuya getting murdered, getting stabbed, quote unquote, umpteen times. <laughs> <laughs> Great. She's watching Fox News. That's to their level of like journalistic integrity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, won by umpteen votes. <laughs> Next segment. <laughs> All right. Um, I feel like now we should probably start bringing in what happens after this movie arrives in the world. Like, how is this movie received? So well. This movie was received so well. It premiered at Fantasia in 1997. A movie that the producer didn't believe in, that the budget got cut, all this shit. First time director, based on a book called Total Pervert. (laughs) Premieres at Fantasia in 1997, sells out right away. They need to add more screenings. Critical Darling, right? Uh, what is it? I'm going to look up right now. What do you think? I know it's IMDb score is 8.0. What do you think it's Rotten Tomatoes score is right now? Not that these fucking review aggregators are actually useful tools, but I think numbers are fun. Critics, 91. Audience, 95. We're going to see. Critics, 80. Audience, Ugh. 89. Damn, okay. So I was too too high on both, but I had the basic idea down, which is audience probably likes it more than critics, but critics definitely do like it. This fucking thing, I think at a point in time, had 100% critical. I, I, think, that's, I think that's true. I, I, you know, I could sit here clicking through right now with you. I'm sure people who are just like, uh, cartoons... Yeah, well, well, we'll we'll deal with that. Big body pizza will deliver those people in their own time. Um. Well, it's like trying to get like a great score with a horror movie. You've just got to understand an 8.0 out of 10 is a perfect score for a horror movie, right? Because mm-hmm. one in five people simply just reject the idea. Very true. So that's 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 my take on it. So successful, in fact, that the novelist rewrote Perfect Blue. To be more like Khan's version. So in some ways, it he, uh, it, yeah, it, it, this is as if like after uh, Kubrick's The Shining, Stephen King was like, oh shit, you're right. And instead of making his own The Shining, he just rewrote The Shining. <laughs> right. Although like The Shining, they did do another live action adaptation that is supposed to be very bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I saw the Stephen King directed Shining before the Kubrick one. Really? It's wow. true. It's true. How did you manage that? Like, was it just like on TV? It was TV? on TNT. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I was homesick from school. It was on TNT. Like, The Shining's supposed to be good. And I click on, and I'm like, what's with these CG topiary animals? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I thought I thought the fucking um I thought the fucking Joker was in this. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> that should date that uh exactly. Yeah, so, um, somewhere someone's going Jared Leto is in The Shining. Right. <laughs> and th- those are the people who really need to listen to this podcast. You, you know, it, the movie sort of like gives Satoshi Khan a blank check to quote a different much more popular podcast, <laughs> but it, it it also unfortunately be like comes to define his career in a way that even he acknowledges in the, in the perfect blue DVD uh, bonus content. He uh, begins like a lecture on the movie where he says he's pointing at like uh, him being billed for like what the, what he's giving the talk at. He goes, look at the way they're billing me. Satoshi Khan, director of perfect blue. He's like, it's 2005. Perfect <laughs> Blue came out in 1997. I'm still the director of Perfect Blue. My profession is director of Perfect Blue. <laughs> you know, again, like, he's a smart ass, clearly. And right. he's right that that is like a funny thing to remark on. But it's like, most people don't get a movie like that. And to have it be your first time out, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> it's got to be hard to to most people's idea peak so soon. Mm-hmm. It's like the right. Nas I, thing, right? You know, right. like not everyone gets to make an Illmatic ever, but to make Illmatic first, that's tough. It's tough. Wu-Tang, same thing, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's always like, oh, why isn't, why can't it be more like End of the 36 Chambers? I'm not starving in Staten Island anymore, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure he's the same way, right? So, unlike Evangelion, as we've said before, Perfect Blue has kind of like a, a, a big footprint. In America, I think in Europe too, because most of his later movies have gotten immediate theatrical releases in America and at least the UK, which is good in a way, but is also bad, which brings us to (laughs) the long string of other Dormcore directors trying to cash in on Perfect Blue and not being able to do it. So... If you've listened to season one of the Human Instrumentality podcast, you know that I've been raring, swearing, and declaring that Darren Aronofsky's creative output is barren when it comes to the movie <laughs> Black Swan. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. So if this was a live audience, I'd say raise your hand. If you've seen perfect blue and black swan (laughs) and to everyone and to everyone who's raised their hand, I want to point at them and be like, you tell me the difference (laughs) and you tell me the difference and you tell me the difference. Um, obviously they're not exactly the same, but we should um, perhaps establish a timeline that there's a reason why this became like a, point of interest enough that like Darren Aronofsky has had to comment on it publicly to the point where it is like now like locked onto the Wikipedia page, the like perfect blue part of the black swan, you know, Wikipedia. So Darren Aronofsky had to buy some of the rights to perfect blue in America in order to put a scene into Requiem for a Dream. Hello, this is Ian from the future editing this podcast. What I just said in the past about Aronofsky acquiring the rights to Perfect Blue in order to copy a scene for Requiem for a Dream is false. It's false. No way. Not this time. 
We created it. Not this time. No, not this time. It's totally made up. Pure fiction. It's fiction. It's fiction. We made it up. This rumor has floated around the internet for over a decade, and I had gotten so used to repeating it that I blurted it out even though I knew it was bullshit. My apologies. Please enjoy the rest of the episode. Previously mentioned Dormcore movie that I kind of think sucks. I don't think that movie's actually good. It's just like, it's really aggressive and uh, unpleasant and is rubbing your face in it. But like, no, thank you. Not a good movie. Amazing main theme. I think I, I really think that is like that is like a movie that's just like gotten off on like just the main Clint Manzel theme and Kronos Quartet like string section yeah. thing just being so indelible. Right before there was the Hans Zimmer Blom, there was Lux Alterna or whatever it's called. Like that Lux Alterna. Yeah. yeah, that cello theme was in every single movie trailer for like a decade until Inception, and we'll get to Inception <laughs> later. <laughs> So, yes, clearly Aronofsky had seen Perfect Blue, used a short scene, the one of Mima screaming in the bathtub following the photo shoot. That shows up in Requiem for a Dream. Is it Jennifer Connelly, I believe? is it's, the- Gen- it's Jennifer Connelly. It's either before or after the iconic ass-to-ass yes. scene. Right, yeah. So, you know, Perfect Blue comes out 97, Black Swan comes out in 2010. According to a uh, a post by E Online, Aronofsky had been talking to Natalie Portman about doing Black Swan as early as the year two thousand. Uh, th- Three years after Perfect Blue, if you haven't done the math, I did it for you. So this is not like after years of not thinking about Perfect Blue that he like ended up regurgitating a bunch of it, you know, in the twenty tens, and. Yes, there are a ton of similarities. But before we get into those, I do at least want to like point out the differences because when I first saw both of these movies in the same year, the year 2010, this became like a pet cause of mine. And it wasn't until <laughs> later that I realized that many other people around the world had the same reaction. So I think I've gone very hard on this point. And I do want to like, I don't want it to become an like, I don't want to overstate the case is I guess what I'm trying to say. Like I want it to be, I want the, the, the potency of this claim to remain valuable. And in order to do that, we do need to separate, like we need, we need to point out where these two movies diverge so that we can point out where they're glued to each other at the hip. Is that fair? I mean, what one's about a ballerina. There you go. <laughs> so, well, for you, you said you had a good story about seeing black swan in theaters. <laughs> So, yeah. So at least in Black Swan he like does the thing where he makes the 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 the, the, the there's no manager. There there is an overbearing mother figure. Right. And the overbearing mother figure is much more obviously like villainous, right? Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I went to see Black Swan in theaters with my mother <laughs> and my younger sister who was a ballerina. Oh my god. Yeah, and uh, I had them situated on either side of me when we're watching the movie. I've seen my sister like get up in the morning and do the painful-sounding toe-crack thing. That's real. Best body horror thing Darinovsky's ever done is that toe-crack thing. 
But yeah, so <laughs> I'm watching Black Swan. I have to spend the entire second, probably the last two thirds of the film with my arms crossed because <laughs> my sister and my mother's hands are both on the armrests on either side of me, gripping them like hawk talons into roadkill. <laughs> Not speaking, not looking at me, not looking at one another, just glued to this screen, slowly becoming tenser and tenser and tenser. I'm surprised they didn't have to use WD-40 to pry them out of the movie theater seats when that movie was done. Um, so d- d- during that, like, the Mila Kunis eat- eating her out scene, I'm like sitting there, I'm like, okay, why have I done this to myself? I knew this was coming. I walked right into it. Did I want to see this movie that badly? Guess so. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I asked, I knew, knowing exactly the type of story that you're going to tell. I asked that, like knowing that, like, yes, Black Swan leans way more into the mom issues side yeah. of things. It's like much more foregrounded and, uh, Essentially, like if, you, if we're looking at it from the perfect blue lens, like the managers are redacted into a overbearing mother figure that has essentially kept the main character, Nina, <laughs> not Mima, Nina. Every time you say it. In a state of like perpetual childhood where like her room also incredibly detailed, also filled with stuff, but stuff of a child rather than stuff of a like very obviously 30 year old woman. This is one of the things Mm -hmm. that I really liked revisiting the movie is how Natalie Portman is. I think of no fault of her own because time passes looks way older than an, a like star dancer should, you know? And there's some, yeah, I think there's something that's kind of like highlighted about her looking like being very clearly an adult and not even looking like a young adult, but an adult adult that heightens the creepiness of what her mother is doing to her and trying to like, and also Nina is much more aggressively unwell at the start of the movie. And there's much more allusions to like a history of anxiety and scratching herself and like body harm and stuff like that in her past that, I think ultimately in comparison to perfect blue robs it of a certain degree of dramatic tension. Cause she's kind of insane from the beginning of the movie, but it is fleshed out in that way. It's truer to that specific experience. I think there's also a lot more what we would anachronistically for the year 2010 call like me too stuff in black Swan. Well, the, the, instead of a creepy fan and also like a man, a male manager who's maybe pushing her too hard, like those characters are sort of fused into like a rapey dance instructor. Right. And her relationship with a lot of the other dancers in the movie is kind of framed by this kind of tacit awareness of uh, him being very quote unquote hands on with the the dancers and there's accusations kind of flown thrown between characters of like certain characters doing sexual favors to get ahead in yeah. the industry that I think is like Hollywood specific and feels I feel like Aronofsky is doing something a bit more pointed and a bit more a bit different than the more like systemic institutional critique of perfect blue by comparison 
You're saying the guy who made the movie Mother may have like a, a lot of insight into rapey men in Hollywood? <sighs> yeah, you might. <laughs> Do you just leave that there? We don't need to touch it's it. Just, we can just, just drop it there, yeah. and you pick it up if you. I don't. I've never met Darren Aronofsky. I don't know. I'm just. I'm. I'm just asking questions. Finally, I think Black Swan is very much an American story. Yeah, in that it is ultimately a movie about transcendence through hard work in perfect blue Mima's arc is towards better understanding of herself coming to terms with what her own agency and finding happiness into that. Once she's like outgrown these like models of parenthood and industry control that we discussed previously, black Swan is not about Nina escaping anything. It's about her buckling down pulling herself up by her bootstraps and through her own mental anguish method acting herself into greatness in that way. It's, it's more of a predecessor of whiplash. For example, it's a great example of what in basketball we would call the Mamba mentality. This sort of like (laughs) Kobe Bryant, like become your most evil shadow self in order to be great and do like murder anyone, kill anything, like d- devour all of your haters along the goal, along the way to be that. And, you know, Aronofsky was working over similar themes around the same time. He just made the wrestler, which I haven't seen, but from what I understand is more aggressively a sports movie that dives into those tropes of, you know, giving yourself all the way into your performance. And I think that's kind of like Aronofsky's whole thing is this sort of like, totemic reverence for going all the way like in that same article that i sent you and that we'll have in the show notes the amount of work that natalie portman had to do to even like look the way that she does she's 98 pounds by the end of the movie like is like absolutely starving herself is like pushing herself through dance lessons it's this like method acting thing that's imposed upon the cast that I think speaks to the movie's overall moral being about suffering leading to great art, which is one of my least favorite tropes in the world. And it's the one that I think black Swan is, has somewhat of an ambivalent feeling about where it's like, what happened to Nina is bad, but Hey, wasn't that final dance sequence pretty sick. (laughs) And the, this idea of like giving yourself, in your entirety to your work and dying for your art and yada, yada, yada. By comparison, I think perfect blue is like a much healthier movie. Cause it just says like, no, like you can just, just be you like, stop worrying about all that stuff. So those are the, the crucial differences as far as I see them. Here's my thing. If we're going to talk about filmmakers who are sadists with a martyr complex that have depicted Biblical imagery, Hideki Anno is much better because the Darren Aronofsky Moses movie is garbage. Yeah, Noah's pretty bad. Really fucking, really fucking bad. Also, um, when you're sadistic to real actors, it shows up in the press. When you're sadistic to your contracted animators, uh, you become a millionaire. Uh, (laughs) That is the difference. Do, Do Nina and Mina also both sustain grievous injuries to their side? Uh, so During there's the climax. There's uh, car crashes as a repeated theme in both. Winona right. Ryder's character gets hit by a car. Uh, Mimania 
runs over one of the uh, the young punks earlier in Perfect Blue, and then yeah, and Rumi all, almost gets hit by, by the car. same car. Yeah, twice. There's like the <laughs> the invocation of car crashes. Yes, there's also the uh, the sort of mundane object that becomes like a stabbing implement. Right. There's a mirror that shatters during the climactic fight between uh, both Rumi and Mima, as well as Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman that leads to a character getting stabbed in the stomach. There's the exact same subway reflection shot of the alternative identity showing up. Nina sees images of herself throughout New York City. Mima sees images of herself throughout Tokyo. It's it's relentless. It is like down to the very final shot of Black Swan, which is the roar of a crowd fading to white with people chanting, Nina, Nina, Nina. Mm-hmm. That happens multiple times in Perfect Blue. The exact same framing, the exact same fade to white, and crowds screaming, Mima. It's just like, bro. <laughs> bro! There is... Uh, roundtable interview of everyone who's nominated for best director the year that Black Swan came out, including Darren Aronofsky, uh, where someone asked him, how did he fund Black Swan? And he basically admits to committing financial fraud. <laughs> what? <laughs> We've got to find this. I don't know if we're going to be able to find this video. Maybe you scrub the video, but he, he, he literally like says the interview. He was, he's like, the financier described how he would fund the movie to me and I asked him, is this a Ponzi scheme? And after that, I stopped asking questions. Oh, my Lord. Fuck off, Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> I really hope I never have to ask Darren Aronofsky for a job in my future. <laughs> One other point is that Black Swan is entirely located in Nina's head. And yeah. everything that is happening is through her perspective. Whereas in Perfect Blue, we have, as I said before, three characters that are losing their minds in three different ways. We've got Mima, M- Mima, uh, Rumi, and Mimania are all having three separate delusions. Whereas Darren Aronofsky tightens that just to being Nina's delusions for the entirety of the movie. And somehow Perfect Blue feels more ca- claustrophobic. Well, it's less breathing room. Exactly. It's just a matter of it's much filmmaking. tighter. Yeah. Right. Aronofsky is not a good a good fit for Khan's filmmaking because so much of what makes Khan's filmmaking great isn't the story itself, it's the presentation. And presentation is not actually Aronofsky's strong suit. Right? Yeah, his strong suit is being intense, and I think that's kind of it. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's it's just mean. It's just really mean storytelling in my in 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 my opinion. And I, I like I value certain kinds of meanness. Yeah. I mean going back to your previous I, I think that like the fact that Darren Aronofsky has some anime in him kind of is one of his stronger suits. Like Mother. Mother is like the exterminating angel, the anime, the live action. You know? Yes. <laughs> and like the yeah. the animeness of Mother is why it's worth watching because it goes that far fucking off the rails into cuckoo uh cloudland is like the best part of the movie but god is he just so overbearingly on the nose about everything that he makes it's like he he is not khan's successor in any in any legitimate way in my opinion he's not willing to do the thing where he's where like he's like 
Darren Aronofsky, you finish a movie and you feel as though he's grabbing you by the shirt, shaking you, screaming, well, did you get it? Mm-hmm. Whereas Khan and Anno are much more into being like, I don't really care if you got it, right? Did you enjoy it? It's interesting because Aronofsky is not the only, like, dorm core, like, heavy hitter director to have worked as a result of legal action or not with Satoshi Khan. Mm-hmm. Because unquestionably, like, so if you're going to talk about the big four dorm core directors, as opposed to in comparison to the big four of Thrash, Slayer is David Fincher. Yep. And Raining Blood is seven. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is where we're at. Uh, Megadeth is probably, uh, I don't know who did one good thing in there. Forgettable. That's the, that's the usual suspects, uh, right? Brian Singer. Yeah. Brian Singer. Oh, and, and now they're a total asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Canceled. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Brian Singer is, is Megadeth. He's Dave Mustaine. Um, Metallica is Christopher Nolan, four masterpieces in a row. And then a bunch of, nah, it's all right. I don't, yeah, it's a bit much, right? There you go. And uh, Aronofsky, I guess that means you're anthrax. From New York. The rest of them from New York. York. <laughs> yeah. Uh, be, be funny like Scott Ian, Darren Aronofsky. Try that. Huh? Yeah. Um, so the Metallica is Chris Nolan. Chris Nolan uh, met with Khan. Interesting. To discuss a, a remake of Perfect Blue. Huh. They did not come to uh, an agreement. But people have pointed out that uh, Perfect Blue and many other con films seem to be an influence on the movie Inception. Not a direct, you know, not, it's not like a ripoff. Yeah. Like, we haven't said it, but it, seem, it seems though Aronofsky is like, is like taking more than influence from Perfect Blue, right? Whereas I think Nolan was just inspired by Perfect Blue. But my issue with Christopher Nolan... Is, is that unlike Aronofsky, he's totally unwilling to go into cuckoo bananas land, even when he's got like a movie that all but demands it. Yes. Like, I do want to put a pin in this because the movie that most resembles uh, Inception is going to come up later in this season. Um, yeah. They also discussed making that movie together. Same meeting, I think. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yes. We'll, we'll deal with... I, I wanted to have this like Aronofsky, Aronofsky uh, Darren Aronofsky roast fest here so that we could then set up a similar recurring, you know, I, I want to address the Nolan thing again, but I'm glad that you planted this, uh, this seed for it here. Happy to do it. Do you feel better? Do you feel relieved? I do. And if I can make one point that will maybe bring us closer to the next episode, it's that all of the dorm core the big four and otherwise uh, directors that we've discussed, of course they could all do their own type of perfect blue movie. I don't think to a one of them could do the movie that Satoshi Khan did next millennium actress. No, I think I don't think they could I think David Fincher almost sort of tried. And it's his <laughs> worst movie. And it's to Khan's credit that he, he did not, try to work with Hollywood, but instead I think made a very Hollywood like movie for his second film. That was also like absolutely a film that only Satoshi Khan could have made. Yeah. Um, the next episode I'm really excited for it because I, I like perfect blue a lot. I love millennium actress. I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I 
Perfect Blue, one of my favorite movies of all time, but I am so excited to talk about rewatching Millennium Actress as an adult now with you for this next episode. So with that note of excitement, until then, sweet dreams, everyone.